0: Late last summer, Diane Hessen got a call from the Hillary Clinton campaign. Hessen's an entrepreneur and executive, and she had previously founded the market research firm C-Space. And the Clinton campaign wanted her to help them get inside the minds of undecided voters in swing states. So Hessen joined the campaign, she kicked off a voter research project that has now extended well beyond the 2016 election. Her approach is qualitative. She's in regular contact with 200 Trump voters and 200 Clinton voters, working to understand their motivations and tracking their reactions to cultural and political events. Her unique insights have made her a regular on CNN and a fixture on the pages of the Boston Globe. And Hessen and I discussed her experience on stage at Spangler Auditorium during this year's fall reunions. Dan, thank you again for being here. I really appreciate it. This is a new way of looking at these undecided voters We're sort of a black box. What were you seeing early on that was revelatory
1: to you? It was absolutely shocking to me how many people, you know, I think for somebody like me, I could see people not... Being wild about Hillary Clinton. Maybe she wasn't warm enough. People talked a lot about, oh, you know, the only time I really saw her as warm and authentic was that night in New Hampshire in the previous election when it looked like she was going to cry and all of that. I, I think people had issues with her transparency or whatever, but there were a significant number of people who had huge distaste for Donald Trump, uh, but who really believed that. Uh, Hillary Clinton, you know, was uh, the last person in the world you'd want to put in the White House. And, you know, I'd really explore this with people. People had long lists, going all the way back to Vince Foster and Whitewater and fast-forwarding to the Clintons taking furniture out of the White House and the uh, Benghazi and the emails and the Clinton Foundation and Donna Brazil giving questions to the campaign. I mean, they went on and on and on and said, this is not normal. This is a pattern of corruption. It was shocking to me how much people ultimately, uh, many people ultimately said, you know, I think I'd rather vote for Donald Trump than for someone like that. It was an interesting reflection of what was going on in the country at the time.
0: What was driving your questions? Where were you pulling
1: these uh, prompts from? Uh, most of the time, I just was looking at things that were going on in the news. You know, here's what happened this week, what's your reaction? What about this, what about this? And um, in this first phase, because this phase ended at the election, what I'd asked people to do on a weekly basis was to say, on a scale of one to 10, um, where are you if, you know, um, one is I'm gonna vote for Clinton, another, the other end of the spectrum is I'm gonna vote for Trump, You're somewhere in the middle. Every week, people would let me know where they were going and where they were shifting. And, of course, um, uh, I I know some of you have talked to me about this, but um, the the most significant moment uh, in all of that research was the week of September 9th in 2016, um, in the aftermath of Hillary Clinton saying that she thought that uh, half of Trump voters... Uh, could be put in what she called a basket of deplorables. And I will tell you, all of these people who were unsure and shifting, there were a very, very significant number of people who during that week said, that's it. That's it. Um, You could say that Donald Trump is bullying Miss Universe, is bullying a gold star family, is bullying John McCain. But now we have a presidential candidate who is bullying half of the country. And um, there was a very significant shift and a bunch of people making decisions uh, in the aftermath of that. So that was probably the big moment.
0: But you have this interesting view because what a lot of the commentators believe is moving the electorate, you have an actual view into the electorate, so are you seeing that, that, that what you are hearing from your select group is different from, from maybe what the what the media might be
1: concentrating on? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It happens all the time. Um, but I will tell you that when Comey came out and said, I'm reopening this investigation, all that, there was almost no movement. Um, most people, I mean, if you thought that the emails were fine, that this was just the action of a woman who was not technical in her late sixties or whatever, and she had handled it and everything else. Comey's announcement was like, ah, you know, when are we ever going to get rid of this issue? And if you thought that she was guilty, with it, it was reinforcing a narrative that you already believed. Where there was movement is within that same time period, and this is where I think maybe the campaign was measuring it. Within that same time period, there was an announcement that Obamacare rates we're gonna go through the roof. And the way you'd remember this is, remember he was screaming, um, Arizona rates, up 112%, Arizona rates, up 112%. I was thinking about my friend Steve McConnell who lives in Arizona. I mean, that was an enormous moment for them. I wrote to the campaign, I said, don't even go to Arizona, don't go, because everybody is talking about the increases in those rates, and I think that Trump literally got the state of Arizona from that rate hike Hmm. and from just saying it again and again and again. And lots of people shifted and started feeling that Obamacare wasn't working uh, as a result of that. And it came right around the same time uh, as as the Comey revelations.
0: You've been doing this work now for for quite some time. What, from your estimation, what political actions can actually change people's minds?
1: So here's what I think. I think that the extremes get the attention. So I, first of all, I, this is really hard to say, but I, I am convinced that our country is less divided than we think we are in terms of how we actually feel about the president, how we actually feel about what is going on. But the people who are on the extremes get the attention. I mean, somebody puts up a Confederate flag and says, KKK neo-Nazi, whatever that person gets on TV and someone who's really extreme on the other end uh, will get the same amount of attention. But my data says that about 65% of the country at the moment um, is pretty uh, unhappy with Trump, uh, and yet is also just disappointed in the Democratic Party, which they feel is uh, old faces with old ideas. The interesting thing is, though, independent of that, of the 400 voters that I spoke with, what percentage of them would change their vote if they could do it all over again out of the 400 voters? low. There are three out of the 400 that would change their vote. But again, how, you know, this is MBAs. How do you interpret this? That doesn't mean that everybody's divided. It just means that I think we had this dynamic in which people voted for, many, many people voted for the lesser of two evils. For them.
0: How has this project changed you, you
1: and your opinions? Honestly, you know, um, Daniel, I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. You know, my background, ra- my backyard was the size of this coffee table. I mean, many of us have that background. And I always thought that was kind of an advantage in my life. I thought it made me a better marketer because I understood the common man because I came from being in the common man. And I will tell you, I, um, it's shocking to me how much I lost touch. You know, there, there are unbelievable statistics here. Um, 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Um, half of Americans save less than $100 a week. Um, 40% of Americans have been in situations in the past couple of months where they literally don't know how they're going to afford their next meal. People are really, really worried about health care. Um, those statistics are things that we have to keep in mind. And I don't think that the implication is that you have to, we have to all open up our checkbooks and write bigger checks. I don't think the implication is that everybody necessarily has to pay more taxes. But there are a lot of people who have not benefited from the prosperity of our country. And I think to see income inequality and to see what's going on with people's lives I do, it does change my view of things.
0: Thanks so much, Diane. Uh, we'll take some questions now from the audience, and we'll, we'll start in the back. Hi, not John, uh, 77. First of all, I'd, I'd like to say thank you for the observation you made just now about recognizing yourself, about losing track of where you come from. I, I personally felt it was a really moving an important, uh, important message for, for us all. Thank so you, I, I thank you, and I think it's probably got a wider audience for that. And then to, just on your selection of the, of the sample for the, for the second group, how is that a totally random group, or what does it represent, or are the extremes in there... Oh, How did you go about doing that, and what does that group
1: represent? The sample is pretty random. I have every state, I have every age, I have an even number of conservatives, liberals, people in the middle. Um, I have pretty good mix racially, um, uh, in terms of sexual preference, all that. I will tell you that I'm doing a new project now with um, a group of interns in Boston. I didn't think I had enough people under the age of 30. And um, I'm really, really interested in the next generation, how they think about politics. Um, I went to Tufts undergrad, which, of course, my section mates there all know. Um, and at Tufts, they've done some really fascinating research, which basically says that 50% of millennials didn't vote, that in the 2012 Election in Massachusetts when it was Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney and when it was Elizabeth Warren versus Scott Brown. So you look at those elections, you think that everybody would vote. Something like 28% of college students <coughs> voted in that election. So voter engagement on the part of people under 30 is terrible. And you ask basic questions like, um, why don't you vote? And they would say things like, well, you know, nobody asked me to. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. So I'm, uh, with a group of interns, I'm going to create a whole um, additional group of 400 millennials um, across all states. And I'll mush them in with the 400 from time to time, but I just want to understand, you know, what's going on for all these people. So we just did, it. most of these interns are Democrats. So I said, look, as part of your training session, we're going to get a Trump voter on the phone, and you're going to learn how you talk to that person. Because you can't, Say to somebody, "Well, wait a minute, though. Don't you think he's kind of racist?" I mean, you you have to say what's going on. How do if there's a way to do this kind of research? So we got this kid on the phone who's a sophomore at University of Maryland who loves Donald Trump, and I interviewed him for 45 minutes. As all these interns are, you know, writing it down, it was really interesting. And at the end, the person, uh, the woman who was sitting next to me who is um, a senior at Harvard, I said, well, what did you think? And she said, I've got to tell you, I'm shocked. I could like, oh, before the interview, she said she knows no Trump voters. None. She's never met one. This is like, she's about to meet, you know, somebody from another planet. So I finished doing the interview on the phone, and she says, I've got to tell you, I could like be, I could totally be friends with him. Um, Which was a A really poignant moment for me to have somebody say that.
0: Right over here. Joe, HBS 77. I'm going to ask you to project forward a couple years, and the Democratic Party calls you and says, so you've done a lot of research. um,
1: Well, you know, I'm just starting to explore that with voters. You know, what do the Democrats really need to do? I wrote an op-ed about this, um, and essentially, I, I think there are a few things. Number one, the Democrats need to know that In the eyes of Trump voters, Donald Trump is crushing it. You go to his website, there's a list of 59 things that he has done. The economy is better, the stock market is better, the unemployment rate is down, the borders are more secure, ISIS looks more vulnerable, we have a phenomenal Supreme Court justice. I mean, I can go on and on and on, and Congress, including the Republicans, are in that guy's way, and nobody is going to give him um, they're not going to give him any benefit of the doubt. So I do think that step one is not saying, well, wait a minute, you know, let's get all of the non-racist, non-bigoted, normal people in the country to just vote more and we'll be fine. I, I don't think it's about that. I think it's you know, understanding your enemy. Um, the second thing, Joe, is um, people now believe that the primary message coming out of the Democratic Party is resist, but just resistance alone doesn't do it. People want fresh, innovative thinking, new ideas from, you know, probably people who are new leaders. Um, I, the message—I mean, I suggested a message. I don't think I've really done enough research on this, but I think what I said is: I think what voters need is. They want a new, they want the American dream back. You know, you ask people if their children's lives are going to be better than theirs, and most people will hesitate and say, I don't know, I'm not sure. And a lot of people in the middle part of the country say very quickly, no. You know, there's, there's not a great sense of optimism about the future, and I think, you know, that's what people are looking for.
0: So, Diane graciously offered to put a question to her group of voters for us for this event. And the question is about uh, the intersection of business and politics. And, Diane, I'll let you talk about what that question was.
1: Yeah, so I asked people a couple of different things. So, the first thing I said was, you know, given um, that we now have a businessman who is president, and remember, probably at least 50 people stopped there and said he's not a businessman, he's a fake. But I asked that question anyway. uh, what do you think a business, what would you expect in the presidency a business person to be really good at and not good at? And um, so the, the uh, number one responses were super predictable. So what's a business person gonna be good at? Man- working through the economy, managing the economy. And what are they not gonna be good at? Policy and understanding kind of how the democratic process works. The number two answer, on what they would be good at is getting stuff done. The number two answer on what they're not good at is they wouldn't be good at like compassion, empathy, and understanding other people. I think that's kind of sad. And, and by the way, um, uh, the number three on what they wouldn't be good at is foreign policy, which I actually <laughs> thought was also really interesting. Um, you know, what do you think about that? Number one, I, I always think that's a, st- a sad state of affairs when we business people have a reputation for being really good at the hardcore stuff and not great at uh, the soft stuff. Um, I also think it says that we should all be aware of the fact that Donald Trump has had a significant impact on the brand of what a business person is and that... We need to be aware of that. That doesn't mean people like us more or don't like us more, but if you say you're in business, all of the good and bad that comes with what we're seeing from our leadership now um, is a part of that. Um, the second thing I asked is, um, what would you like business people to do? You know, what, what do you wish business people would do more? This was not really surprising. I mean, people want, people are really, really interested in business doing more than paying attention to their bottom line, and this cut across the entire uh, political spectrum, that kind of stuff, is you know they, they're interested in business being more innovative, et cetera. One of the most surprising things to me is I said to everybody, name a business person that you, uh, not the president, name a business person that you really admire. I will tell you, that was a, it was a very short list. I was shocked. So there are the person, okay, so who do you think got the most mentions? Elon Musk, uh, for how innovative he is across the board. This really did not discriminate by um, b- who voters were. Number two was Warren Buffett. I will tell you, after that, it was shocking. They they could like barely come up with somebody. Jeff Bezos got one vote. Tim Cook got one vote. A lot of one offs. People were saying things like Jack Welch. Bernie Marcus, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm talking about like somebody who's in business today. It was a really short list. Lots of people said can't think of anybody. There were a bunch of people who would say things like, well, you know, my brother-in-law who you know, runs a, you know, a clothing store downtown or whatever, I really respect that kind of person, but um, it was a really short list, like people, in, people who are not in business, you know, they don't read About business. They don't have those same kinds of people. Steve Jobs was mentioned once, but I'd put Steve Jobs in the category of Jack Welch and Bernie Marcus, like not running a major company anymore. So that that's my business report now from the front lines.
0: Diane, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for being here as well. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Skydeck is produced by the External Relations Department at Harvard Business School and edited by Craig McDonald. It is available at iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For more information or to find archived episodes, visit alumni.hbs.edu slash skydeck.